Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 27 to 44. And as you're turning there, I want to wish my wife a happy anniversary. Today's our 29th anniversary. Looking forward to next year, 30th. So by grace, we have had a wonderful marriage, and we pray that the Lord would continue to grant us many, many more years. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 44. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word? There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would grant us insight by your Holy Spirit, that we would be amazed at our Christ. Lord, help us to see, help us to believe, help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I read an article online about 15 different questions that are helpful to 
to know and to be able to navigate with in the workplace, whether you're an employer or an employee, all different kinds of questions. Some are open-ended, some are closed-ended. Some encourage conversation, and if you're not careful, some will shut the conversation down. Some are questions of inquiry, and some can even be questions of interrogation. In the South, we have questions that can even get you to question the clothing that you're wearing. Kind of that passive aggressive, passive aggressive question that the mom asked her daughter when the daughter came down wearing a yellow scarf and the mom said, do we like yellow? Well, I guess not. I might need to change my scarf. There's all kinds of different questions, and they serve many different purposes. But in this text, there are two kinds of questions that are being asked. One kind has the purpose of belittling, discrediting, and undermining another's character and beliefs. It sets up a straw man. It creates a ridiculous scenario to try to make the other party look stupid and at the same time to justify one's own beliefs, or rather the denial of the other person's beliefs. Another kind of question has the purpose of provoking rigorous thought and deeper understanding. It provokes biblical thinking and biblical faith. It presents the very topic you can agree upon and then challenges it with additional truths revealed in the Scriptures about the same subject. The genuine question is, how is it so? How does it fit together? The question is to help you think and think rightly. I want us to see several things in our text this morning, but the first one is this. The Sadducees belittle the resurrection with a ridiculous question. Verses 27 to 30. Three, there came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. This is the rabbinical riddle. They must have said it again and again. This would have been something that everybody loved to tell this story because nobody had an answer for it. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. 
I mean, are you going to tell me that, that he's married to all seven? Moses told us in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, he says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in all of Israel. Everybody knew the law, but the Sadducees used the law to belittle the position of the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. Now, there was a common belief in the resurrection among the Jewish people. In fact, in John chapter 11, when Jesus comes to console Mary and Martha over the death of their brother Lazarus, in verse 21 of chapter 11, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She had a confidence in the resurrection on the last day. And of course, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The resurrection was a common belief among the Jewish people. In Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, Job writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, Isaiah says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And of course, one of the most famous passages is Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you believed the Bible, then you believed in the resurrection at the last day. However, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. In fact, in Acts 22, when Paul is being interrogated, in verse 6 he says, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect, with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. One scholar, after extensive research from historian Josephus on the Pharisees, said this excuse me, the Sadducees, he said this, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death, and they did not believe eternal judgment awaited anyone. They believed that God never intervened in day-to-day life. They rejected divine providence, arguing that everything in life is up to man. And the basis for their belief was a strict interpretation of the Torah, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses, in which they claimed they could find no reference to the resurrection. They rejected the resurrection witness of the non-Pentateuchal parts of the Old Testament and remained close-minded to any of the Pharisees' arguments to the contrary. They were dead set that there was no resurrection. See, the Sadducees refused to believe the whole counsel of God. They focused on the Torah, but they didn't recognize the authority of the prophets and the writings. And people do the same thing today. They might not believe in miracles. So they cut out of their Bibles anything that would say that there are miracles in the Bible. Thomas Jefferson. Mainline denominations do the same thing with the red letters. They say, unless Jesus said it, then we don't see any of the other parts of the law, the Old Testament, as relevant to the conversation, specifically LGBTQ issues, specifically women preachers, those kinds of things, they say, unless Jesus said it, we'll believe the red letters, but not the rest of the Bible, not Second or First Timothy chapter 3. I can remember one man saying to me after teaching from 1 Timothy, he said, well, I just don't believe that Jesus would agree with Paul on that. 
And the reality is the whole of the Scriptures, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he's not talking about the red letters. He's talking about the whole of the Scriptures. The Sadducees refused to believe the whole counsel of God. Let me ask you this, do you believe the Scriptures? Do you believe that the Scriptures, the whole of the Scriptures are inspired by God, breathed out by God, authoritative in life? Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. It's not only true, it's truth itself. It's the final standard of truth, all of the Scriptures. Sadducees didn't believe all the Scriptures. They didn't believe a doctrine that was taught in all the Scriptures. But let's look number two. Jesus contends for the resurrection with a corrective response. The Sadducees belittled the resurrection with a ridiculous question, but Jesus contends for the resurrection with a corrective response. Look at verses 34 to 40. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age, I want you to note this, this age and that age. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. It's interesting in Matthew's account and in Mark's account, Matthew records Jesus as saying this, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He's telling the Sadducees, you don't know your Bibles, and you don't know God. So Jesus contends for the resurrection by correcting two things. First of all, by correcting a deficient view of marriage, and then secondly, by correcting a deficient view of the patriarchs. Look first at a deficient view of marriage that he was correcting, verses 34 to 36. They didn't know their Bibles. They didn't understand that there was a difference between this age and that age. There was not a complete continuity that, that marriage is not eternal. Marriage is a wonderful and necessary blessing for this age, but it's not needed for that age. I love marriage. I, I just bless the Lord for a sweet marriage. But I have to keep it in perspective. 
I can't treat it as ultimate because my marriage and your marriage is a shadow of a greater reality. Paul tells us about this in Ephesians chapter 5, that, that marriage represents Christ and the church, God's covenant relationship with His church. That's the substance. Marriage is the shadow. It's the picture. Does your marriage tell the truth about the gospel? Does your marriage tell the truth about God's faithfulness, God's covenant-keeping faithfulness with His bride, the church? Marriage is a pointer to a more ultimate reality. The shadow, not the substance. The the Sadducees saw marriage as the substance. They didn't understand that it was a picture of a greater reality. So Jesus says, sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal or like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. They're immortal. They don't die anymore. And the reality of marriage in this age is for wonderful pleasure and the procreation raising up the next generation to know and love God. But in that age, everyone will be there who is to be there. The gods elect from all the nations will be there. There's no need for marriage at that time, and the most wonderful pleasures and wonderful delights in this life that come from marriage will pale in comparison to the delights that we will have in the presence of our Savior. It's a shadow. It's a picture. But it's not ultimate. When Jesus contends for the resurrection, not only by correcting a deficient view of marriage, but also by correcting a deficient view of the patriarchs. Look in verses 37 to 40. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus heads straight for the Torah. You're going to talk to the Pharisees, you're going to talk from the Torah. Talk from the first five book of Moses. And Jesus goes to one of the most important and most familiar stories from the second of those five books of Moses, the account of Moses in the burning bush. Notice what he says. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. He didn't say in Exodus chapter 3, they didn't have the chapter numbers and verse numbers back then, but they had the passage about the bush, one of the most famous passages where God reveals Himself, His name, 
his covenant name. Moses records the Lord saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Notice that there's a present tense reality in this verse, I am the God of your father. A present tense relationship, I am the God of your father. Kent Hughes says this brilliantly, and I want to share this with you as a quote from Kent Hughes. He says, God's statement, present tense, makes no sense if they are not presently alive. Now, do you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as presently alive? Because if you don't, then your view of the patriarchs might need to be corrected by this text. God's statement, present tense, makes no sense if they are not presently alive. If someone comes to you and says, I was your father's or your mother's friend, it may be because your parent is dead or there has been a change in their relationship. But if one comes to you and says, I am your father's or your mother's friend, that conveys two things. The existence of your parent and the ongoing relationship. So when God said not, I was, was the God of Abraham, but I am, he was declaring not only Abraham's existence, but his ongoing relationship with him. To put it another way, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are nothing but dust, God cannot now be their God. Their bodies may be in the grave, but they are very much alive. Jesus says, even though they die, yet shall they live. So Jesus contends for the resurrection with a corrective response, a surprising response, maybe one that the Sadducees had never heard. But finally, Jesus refocuses the conversation with a question about the Christ. See, in verse 39, it says, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now, it could have been the end right there, but Jesus re-engages. He refocuses the conversation with a question about the Christ. He keeps it Christ-centered. He moves to the heart of the person of the Christ. So in verse 41, he's, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? How? He's asking a question to make them think. You see, the Sadducees had asked a question in the form of a rabbinic riddle to belittle the doctrine that they denied the resurrection. Jesus, however, in order to refocus the conversation on the person of Christ, asked a question that should provoke rigorous thought and a deeper understanding of what the Scripture says about Christ. 
You see, all the teachers of Israel were in agreement that the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, comes from the line of David. No question. He's the son of David that sits on the throne of David, and Jesus could say, Amen, Amen. But do they understand what that really means? So he leads them through a little exegetical study on the first verse of Psalm 110, just one verse, Psalm 110. And that's a psalm that all of the teachers agreed was a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. So he starts with the question in verse 41, and he says, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? They meaning all of the teachers of Israel all of the scribes, all of the Pharisees, all of the Sadducees, everybody agreed. The Messiah was the son of David. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord. Literally in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh said to my Lord. Yahweh said to his Messiah, his anointed one, his Christ, the passage is about Christ, and David calls the Christ Lord, his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, sit in the place of honor, sit in the place of power, sit in the place of preeminent, the Lord's Christ until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Jesus repeats the question again. Watch this. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The question is how? How do you fit the scriptures together concerning the Messiah? The Messiah is David's son. He is the offspring of David. He comes from the house and lineage of David. Yes. The Messiah is also called Lord. He's called Adonai. He's the Lord. He's divine. He is eternal. He sits on an eternal throne over an eternal kingdom. So how can he be David's son? Think about it. Jesus is stirring them to think, to think biblically, to think what do the Scriptures say? And what should have come to mind would have been Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, 
verses 6 and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God said he was going to do it. God himself said, I will come, Ezekiel 34, I will come and seek for my sheep. I will come and rescue my flock, and I will set up one shepherd, David, who will be prince among them, who will shepherd his flock in righteousness. And what should also come to mind? would have been the stories that were repeated over and over about how the angel came and revealed himself to Joseph and revealed himself to Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, we see the account of the angel coming and revealing himself to Joseph or to Mary. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. How? That's how. How can it be? This is how it can be. In Matthew chapter 1, Gabriel comes to Joseph, and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. How? Can it be? The incarnation is the answer. God Himself took on human flesh, 
that God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. And whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how. That's the kind of thought that Jesus was provoking with His question of how. But how might we apply this today? The first way that we can apply this is to know our Bibles and to trust our Bibles. Know your Bible and trust your Bible. Read your Bible, study your Bible, memorize your Bible. Seek to know God as you read your Bible. Don't read it to check off a list. Read it like the psalmist, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I want to know God. And read and study and trust your Bible. Again, Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Do you believe that the word of God is truth itself without any mixture of error. Know your Bible and trust your Bible. Secondly, love the Lord with all your mind. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might. And Jesus says, and all of your mind everything you got. So when a question comes like this, how can it be? Think. Dig. Dig in to know God. God has revealed Himself in His Word that we might know Him. And there are some texts that are hard, and it's so that we will love God with all of our mind. So secondly, love the Lord with your mind. Thirdly, keep the person and work of Christ at the center of the conversation. Keep the focus on Jesus. So many times when we're doing apologetics, we're in conversations that, that could be argumentative, we get way off base. Keep the focus on Jesus, who He is and what He's done. Keep Christ the focus. And finally, number four, don't treat marriage as ultimate. I told this to Richard and Lindsay in their wedding, don't treat marriage as ultimate. Your marriage cannot deliver you. Your marriage cannot ultimately satisfy you. It is only God. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ who can satisfy you. And your marriage is a taste. It's a taste of heaven. It's a taste of the delights that are prepared for you with Him for eternity. So don't treat it as ultimate. Be a faithful steward and treat it as the picture that it is to tell the story of Christ and His covenant relationship with His church. Tell the story of the gospel and tell it faithfully. Amen? Know your Bible and trust your Bible. Love the Lord with all your mind. Keep the focus on Jesus and don't treat marriage as ultimate. Let's pray.
Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he is the one, the only one who can save us from our sins. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would renew our minds, that we would love you more. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't yet know the Savior, that you would open their eyes, that they would be amazed by the goodness of God demonstrated in the giving of Christ to be the sacrifice in the place of sinners. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant repentance that leads to life, even now in the name of Jesus, that sinners would be saved, would be given eternal life. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.